Welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here. Uh, tonight, we're going to wrap up the Temple of Power uh, with the God of Achievement. And the first time I went through this, I thought, yeah, this one's not too hard on me. And then this, this time going through, it's like, man, kind of like Jeanette was telling me earlier, this hit me a lot harder this time than it did before. I didn't realize I had such a problem with achievement. Um, we're going to start with a video with... Um, it's uh, Chuck Colson. I don't. Most most of you are going to know. Probably the Lindsays won't know who that is, but everybody else probably would. But he's an old guy. That's all you have to know. <laughs> okay, so we'll start the video and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Whichever God is victorious wins control over us and ultimately determines our destiny. This is why the Bible has so much to say about idolatry. It may not seem that relevant to us, but behind every sin you're struggling with, behind the discouragement you're dealing with, or the lack of passion and purpose you're living with, is a false God that is winning the war in your life. And until that God is dethroned, and the Lord God takes his place, there will not be victory. While the idols we worship may not be carved from stone or wood, they're oftentimes just as tangible. The God of money, for example, may be the portfolio update that comes in the mail where the Mercedes is parked in the garage. The God of pleasure may be the food in the fridge or the TV on the wall or the website on the computer. But some of the most potent gods that war within us, they're not so easy to spot. They're harder to point to. And that's true when it comes to the gods of power. Without making a conscious decision to do so, we begin to worship the thought of being the most important person in the room. Or that people don't just like us, they fear us. And when we speak, everyone listens. And so we make power a god. And we begin to live for the corner office, the special parking place or the top square of the organizational chart. And without realizing it, the gods of power and success have begun to take the throne of our hearts. I grew up in the Great Depression, which most people today remember as something in ancient history. But I saw people in bread lines and I saw people out of work and families starving. Well, I determined one thing I was going to do was work hard. Nobody in my family gone to college. I dreamed someday I might, and I won a scholarship to an Ivy League university, graduated with honors. I always had this incredible desire to prove myself and to do some good. I was an idealist. And uh, I was, I guess you would say, on the fast track to success. The poor kid grows up, uh, gets all the breaks, and ends up in the office next to the President of the United States. 
I come over sitting on the back porch of our home on Sunday afternoons, which was the only time I got with my dad, because he was in school every night. I'm working all day. And he would teach me the most important thing in life, Chuck, is always tell the truth, always do a good day's work for a good day's pay, and if you put your mind to it, you'll succeed. And that was drilled into me. That was kind of a Puritan work ethic, even though my family were not what we would know today as Christians. Uh, that ethic in America, that ethic that hard work and you can get ahead, the great land of opportunity. The Marine Corps, I've always said, is the second most formative character-forming experience of my life. The Korean War was going on. I wanted to serve my country, and uh, I wanted to be one of the, the few, the proud, the Marines. I learned I was a leader, and I didn't know that I really thought that before I went to the Marines. And I uh, learned lessons of leadership in the Marine Corps that have stayed with me all my life. I remember landing one day, and my captain, the captain of my company, turned to me and he said, Lieutenant Colson, take that hill over there. And I looked at it, and it was a precipice, straight up. And I thought, there's no way you can take that frontally. I said, you mean around the side? He said, go straight for it. And got to the top. And I can remember when I did, I thought, I'm a Marine. I can do anything. I can do anything. So I believed in the power of the human will and determination. If you grow up without much in life and you tried to work your way to the top, you begin to get this idea that the world revolves around you. I believed in God. I could not go out on the deck of the ship as I did one night before a landing and look at all the stars and planets and galaxies in perfect harmony and not believe that there was a creator. But I didn't know him in the sense that you had any kind of a personal relationship. I was, for that period of my life, my own God, my own God. I was going to do exactly what I thought I should do and wanted to do. And I knew if I worked hard enough that I could get it done. And I trampled on a lot of people in the process, I'm sure. Uh, I've looked back on it with a lot of regret for some of the harm I did people during that period when I was so driven. We have said that behind every sin struggle we have is a false god that is winning the war in our lives. When we worship the gods of power and success, the manifested sin is almost always pride. Pride is a sin that we see in others, but we have a difficult time recognizing it in ourselves. In fact, a sure sign that you struggle with pride is an insistence that you don't. That's the way pride is. It's blinding. Obadiah verse 3 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. We don't see it, and so we don't realize what we are sacrificing on the altar of this idol. The gods of power and success demand a sacrifice. Sometimes it's our character, sometimes it's our integrity, but oftentimes what's laid on the altar is our marriage, our children, our faith. I knew Richard Nixon when he was vice president under President Eisenhower. And I had been an administrative assistant to a senior United States senator. So I got to know him, and I admired him greatly. He was a man of unusual, uncommon intellect, and really tough, and driven by the same things that drove me. And then in 1968, uh, when he was running and did run, I volunteered. I wrote issue papers in the campaign, and I worked with him on, on his uh, domestic agenda and domestic issues. And then I got a call from a friend of mine in the White House. He said, the president wants to talk to you like to have you come in and serve him in the White House. And when I heard that, I thought, there's no way I can 
turn that down. I called my kids. I said, should I do this or shouldn't I do it? And my older son said, Dad, if you don't do that, you'll regret the fact that you had that opportunity and didn't take it, no matter what happens. He didn't realize what was going to happen. I was to handle all the special interest groups around Washington, mobilize their support on issues for the president. But very soon, the president began to call me in his office and give me assignments directly. Uh, very soon, I began to bypass the White House staff system because he wanted me to. Uh, very soon I was advising him on a whole range of issues. Very soon he gave me authority over the whole communications apparatus in the White House. I could do anything. In 1971, on my 40th birthday, the Wall Street Journal did a front page piece about a column with a drawing. Uh, and it was labeled Chuck Colson, the new insider. And then it said under it, White House hatchet man. Hatchet Man met them, the guy that did the dirty jobs for the president, fired the people that needed to be fired, was his tough guy. And I was known as that. I was known as the former Marine captain, White House tough guy. Nixon said I'd walk through doors without opening them if I had to. And he was always saying, Chuck is the one guy that can get things done around here. He doesn't pay any attention to the bureaucracy. He just goes ahead and gets it done. Actually, buried in that piece was, he interviewed someone who worked for the United States Senate and said, watch out. He's soft-spoken, but he's tough. So tough he'd run over his own grandmother. And that, that made headlines thereafter. And even to this day, I'll see stories written about me that said, Chuck Colson who once boasted he'd run over his own grandmother. That'll go to my tombstone, I'm afraid. That gone off like a rock. I was intense. The president would call you at all hours of the day and night. He was working around the clock, much too busy. I didn't even enjoy the White House. He offered me cabinet position, anything I wanted to do in the second. I'd get a lot of power, really. American dream come true, grandson of immigrants looking out over the south lawn of the White House in the office next to the president. That was about the ultimate. And instead I felt this tremendous hollowness inside. And I was searching for what mattered in life. I didn't know it, couldn't have articulated that. I just thought I was burned out, tired, <coughs> been on the fast course too long. But that was a moment when I really, uh, for the first time probably in my 41 years, coming to terms with myself and who I was. The big question to me was, what's next? You, at, at 41, you have been the key figure in re-electing the President of the United States. Historic landslide. So it was a success story right up until the point that that election was over and we found ourselves in the middle of Watergate. Well, the scandal was that uh, some guys broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee and bugged the place, which when I heard about it for the first time, which was after got exposed, because I didn't know about it in advance. I thought, that's the dumbest thing anybody ever want to do. Why would you want to do that? I still think it was a dumb thing. I still don't know why they did it. Most of us were taken by surprise by what happened in the break-in. Well, some people in the White House knew it, knew it had happened. What developed was a cover-up. In other words, a denial of our responsibility for what had happened. Well, the press was picking away at it all the time. Woodward Bernstein became famous their stories and their leaks from the government and Deep Throat, the secret source of information. And it began to build and build and build. The president kept denying any involvement. I personally had no knowledge of the break-in before it occurred. No one in the White House was involved. Then it turned out there were tapes of White House conversations, all of them with the president were taped. Finally, congressional hearings were held. Eventually, uh, it became clear he had lost his moral authority to govern. And he was forced to resign. 25 of us who served him uh, were sentenced to prison. 
So the gods of power and success lead to pride, but the Bible warns in Proverbs 16, verse 18, that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So here's what happens. We climb the ladder of success higher and higher as we worship this false god of power, and we don't realize that we are setting ourselves up for a pretty hard fall. So let's do this. Before destruction comes, let's look at some of the signs that this God of power is gaining ground in our lives. First sign is being defensive. A friend or family member questions you and you get insulted easily. You immediately turn the tables and you go on the attack. Another sign is being stubborn. When we worship the God of power, we rarely say things like, I was wrong. I'm sorry. That was my fault. Another sign is being ungrateful. We think we deserve every good thing that comes our way, and if we don't get the promotion or the recognition or the appreciation, we think it's unfair or it's unjust. Another sign is being discontent. Our lives become driven by questions like, who has the most authority? Who has the biggest house? Who has the best office? Who has the highest sales numbers? So now is the time to honestly evaluate if the gods of power and success are gaining ground in this battle. Because should they take the throne, it's only a matter of time until there's a fall. And when there's a fall, there's always collateral damage. Well, Watergate was now raging. The hearings were starting. It was becoming the great national scandal that it became. I went to Boston to meet with uh, Tom Phillips, the president of the Raytheon Company. He was a guy like myself who worked his way to the top the hard way, engineer, day and night worker, intense. I walked in this day, his desk was clear, he was peaceful, he was calm. I'd heard something about him, he had a religious experience, but it didn't mean anything to me. And I said, Tom, you've really changed, what's happened to you? He looked away, he didn't look me straight in the eye, and he said, I've accepted Jesus Christ and committed my life to him. I gotta tell you, I had to take a firm grip on the bottom of the chair, I grew up in that vast Unitarian wasteland of the Northeast. I had never heard somebody say, except Jesus Christ and committed my life to him. And my world was collapsing because the Watergate hearings were started, the investigations were started, I was being called before grand juries. And one night when my wife and I were in Boston, I called Tom and I said, I would like to come see you. I'd like you to tell me what's happened in your life. And I was hurting inside, but I was much too proud to show it. And that was the evening we spent together, the two of us, on his porch, warm August night, 1973. And he witnessed to me. He told me that he had uh, been at a Billy Graham crusade in New York. He had uh, heard the gospel and gone forward with many other people, given his life to Christ, and how his life had changed. And then he read to me from a little book, Mere Christianity, written by one of the great intellectual giants of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis. He read me a chapter out of that book called The Great Sin. And the Great Sin is pride, because we're always looking down on other people and other things, and we can't see something above ourselves immeasurably superior, God. And all the time he was reading that, it was like a hot poker in my gut, because I was thinking, he's really writing about me. This is what I've been. I mean, I thought I was doing wonderful, noble things. I was just trying to prove how good I was. For the first time in my life, I felt totally disarmed. I felt totally helpless. I went out to the car that night, grasping that little book from Christianity he had given to me. Started to drive out of the driveway, and the White House hatchet man, the tough former Marine captain, 
I was crying too hard, calling out to God to be able to drive that car. I had to pull over to the side of the road. I was there a long time. I don't know how long, but I was for the first time in my life talking to God and had the incredible sensation that God was really listening to me. It can't be explained in natural terms. I had never had an experience like that. And of course, I woke up the next morning after I got home that night and figured I'd be embarrassed. I was not a guy that ever cried. And instead, I felt a tremendous relief. And then I read the book, Mary Christianity, and that settled it. I realized exactly what had happened to me. That night, God had touched my life. And that was 1973, and you can do the math. That's a long time ago, and Christ has become more real to me with every passing day. The first step to defeating this false God in our lives is what the Bible would call repentance. That's when we recognize and admit that we've been going the wrong direction. So if the sin most closely associated with the gods of success and power is pride, then the way we defeat those gods is through humility. That's how we repent. And the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In the course of the Watergate investigation, I was converted to Christ. The public found out. And I began to get bags of mail in my office because I was caught going to a White House prayer breakfast. It was the lead of the network news for a week. Chuck Colson, White House tough guy, impossible coming to God. But hundreds of cartoons, I had many of them at home hanging on my wall. They're hysterically funny. And I went on Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes and I was trying to defend Nixon, I really couldn't defend Nixon, and still be honest. So I realized that I couldn't be a Christian and go through that trial and try to defend myself. And so one day I, I sent my lawyer into the prosecutors and said, look, Chuck Colson will plead guilty. Here's something he did, which was issuing defamatory material about Daniel Ellsberg, who stole the Pentagon Papers while he was awaiting trial. And uh, that's a crime, that's obstruction of justice. So I pled guilty to it and was sentenced to prison. But I was free. I can remember the day I arrived in prison, I was thinking to myself, uh, this is tough. I'm going to be separated from my family. I've lost my freedom, lost my right to vote. But I thought, this is a really tough deal. And I, I wasn't really frightened of the other inmates. But I knew it was going to be a lonely, depressing experience. But I felt free inside, because at least I'd put the past behind me. I'd also come to terms with who I really was. And that God of power that had grown me all those years was now dethroned, and I really wanted to live. I wanted to live my life only for the living God, the one true God. There I was, at now 42, in that prison cell, thinking my life was over. Who would ever trust me again as an ex-offender and the scandal of Watergate that I would never be able to do anything significant again? I could make a living, I'd be fine. I wouldn't do anything important. What, of course, I didn't understand is the sovereignty of God and that he often uses the most broken experiences of our lives to do the greatest things for his glory because we can't take any credit. What's happened to me is that God has used me to begin a ministry and to work around the world, share my testimony, write books, do things far more significant than I ever did in politics. But the paradox is that I had to be broken first. A leader has to have been broken in order to get himself out of the way and realize that he's not really in the control he thinks he is.
my gods were uh, get ahead, get power. I really enjoyed it. I loved being uh, saluted. I loved being able to sit with the president and talk about great issues. I loved being able to advise him. I realize now as I look back on it, that's what I was worshiping. That was, that was my God. And all that happened when I was broken completely was I realized I wasn't really as good as I thought I was. That night in my friend's driveway, I was pouring my heart out, tears flowing, and calling out to God, I realized what a wretched person I was. And I also realized that God was forgiving me for that. And that created in me a sense of gratitude that to this day causes me to want to spend every bit of energy and every bit of effort I can to do my duty to God for what he's done for me. What do you think? Anybody here ever struggle with pride? I've heard it said best that pride is the disease that makes everybody sick but the one that has it. Seemed like one of the themes of the, uh, the video, in addition to, to pride being the issue, is it's the, I guess it's the American um, way, I don't know, it's something inside all of us that we have the desire to get her done. Give me, give me a job and get out of the way and I'll get it done. And it seems like that's kind of a part of our society even. Um, we, we all pretty much believe this is a land of opportunity, that if we work hard enough, if we uh, do, do the right things, are honest, that we'll get ahead, we'll succeed, and things will be good for us. And I think that that probably I mean, is something I believe too, I think. And I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, but even when you look back to the founding of this country, it was uh, more or less founded by people who had Christian ideals. They believed in hard work and they got the job done and they were successful and many times I think we look at those achievements and we think that we're uh, doing what God wants us to do when really we're doing what we want to do and we even have our proof text for this in Second Thessalonians 3.10 says for even when we were with you this we commanded you if any will not work neither let them eat anybody ever thought of that verse when you were working hard and thinking I'm entitled to eat now <laughs> this God of achievement um, like I said before the video started I'd really never thought about it in terms that yeah this was something that I'd struggled with but as I was preparing for class I was thinking um, that this is something that has I guess, plagued my family for generations. Uh, when I think back to my grandfather, um, he was a hard-driven man. He had, had a dairy farm, and they farmed uh, row crops, and they, he taught school, high school. And anyway, he, he would get up at four in the morning. He would go milk cows. Then he'd go and come in, get ready for school. He would go teach. And, and then when he would come, as soon as he'd come home, he would 
milk the cows again for the evening milking, and then he would go out, and in the spring he'd be planting crops, and in the summer he'd be tilling crops, and in the fall he'd be harvesting crops, and he would do that till midnight, and then he'd get three or four hours of sleep and get up and start the cycle all over again. And he was just very driven to succeed. And so, so achievement was big for him to be able to, to do a lot, burning the candle at both ends, as we say. And then I looked at my own growing up experience. And my, my dad, he always had something to do. And more importantly, always had something for us to do. I mean, there was... <clears throat> uh, we lived on a farm, so there was always post holes to dig and fence to stretch. There was a garden to hoe and to harvest. Uh, we had a cow that we milked every day, twice a day. We had chickens, so we'd gather eggs and feed the chickens, um, haul hay, feed hay, dig ditches, irrigate. It just never stopped. There was always something to do, some achievement that we had to do. Uh, and at the time, I didn't look at those things as achievement. It was just like punishment or toil. But, but as I've grown up, I, I've, I realize that a lot of times I've developed a lot of those same character traits. Um, when I was growing up, I, was, I wrestled, and that was kind of my identity in high school. And it wasn't that I was looking to beat you. I was looking to beat you up. And I was not, it made me a not a nice person sometimes uh, when I look back and see some of the, the things I did and the way I treated people. And even today, I've always got a project, at least one, don't I? <laughs> Usually more than one. <laughs> and I, I just don't sit down. I'm always up doing something. And as I was reading through this book, it was like, man, this is... This is hard hitting. And, and even like this thing right here, talk about setting goals and trying to reach them. I mean, I was just looking today, I've got 367 days where I've gotten at least 10,000 steps. I just don't stop. I get, that's my, my goal and so I do it. So it's like, what kind of crazy person am I to be following this kind of achievement um, and following my goals instead of what God wants me to do sometimes. I think that in our society and probably in the church too, does, does anybody in here set goals and strive to meet those goals? I, I think we all do, don't we? And, and I'm, I'm not saying that's bad. And, and when, I'm, when I'm talking about these things, it's not that there, there, I mean, there's nothing bad about achievement. It's only when achievement becomes our God. And just like the past lessons, there's nothing wrong with money until money becomes our God. There's nothing wrong with success until success becomes our God. And so just because I'm talking about this, I'm not... I'm not trying to indict anybody here because I've got plenty to look at on the inside. And I think probably the most important thing that we can look at in here at ourselves is why? Why am I striving to meet these goals? Why am I striving to gain money? Why am I striving for success? And so what, what is it? Is it for my own 
gratification and glory or am I trying to do things for the glory of God? And I think a lot of times as we strive for these goals, then following God sometimes can become a goal in itself. It's like I can check that box off my to-do list that I went to church. And that's, that's my box for following God. And I think that's where we kind of miss the boat sometimes. And when we look at Jesus' life, has anybody achieved more in their lifetime than Jesus did? I'd like to know who it was if there was. I mean, he, in just a very short amount of time, three years-ish, that he turned the world upside down. And yet, when you look at his life, he didn't have a to-do list that he was checking items off of. You, you saw that he had time for people. He had time for children. He said in Matthew uh, 19, he said, um, the people brought children to Jesus. He placed his hands on them and prayed for them. But the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. So he had time for people. It wasn't about accomplishment, about checking a list and get, getting everything done. And he also had time for his friends. And if you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 10. And this is where we'll spend the bulk of the rest of class. Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha. They're the sisters of Lazarus. And in verse 30, or yeah, Luke 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. How many people relate to Martha? <laughs> she gets a bad rap here, doesn't she? <laughs> Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it, will be not and it will not be taken away from her. So out of this passage, I want us to look at two simple statements. Martha was distracted, and Mary had chosen. The God of achievement distracts us. Things need to be done. I've got lots of stuff to do. Bob was just telling me on the way in here that now that he's retired, he doesn't know how he ever had time to work. There's so much to do. So Martha was distracted by the preparations. She was experiencing the tyranny of the urgent. What she was doing was good. She was even doing it for Jesus, wasn't she? But Jesus didn't commend her for that. He said that Mary had chosen better. 
So what does that mean? What we're doing can be good, but if there's something better, the good becomes bad, right? So in this issue of idolatry, we kind of go back to the first lesson that we had here in this is you choose. See, Mary chose. Martha was distracted. So we heard it from uh, Moses. We heard it from Elijah. We heard it from Joshua. You choose. Martha demonstrates another characteristic of someone that struggles with the God of achievement. And that's when she starts comparing herself to her sister. And she's comparing that, hey, look, she's just sitting there doing nothing, and I'm up over here working, trying to get your dinner ready for you. Tell her to come and help me. And there's two symptoms here that um, they talks about in the book that indicate when the, the God of achievement is gaining ground in our life. And one is frustration with those that aren't getting it done, that are sitting at the feet of Jesus instead of up helping me prepare dinner. And the other one is discontent with ourselves when we don't measure up. And I think both of those can be equally destructive um, in our relationships. When we worship the God of achievement, getting things done and getting them done right has an elevated importance. In, in Psalm 46.10, it, it says, He says, Be still and know that I am God. Have you ever been busy enough you couldn't be still? I have. Sometimes even today you'll sit down, it's like, My mind is racing 90 miles an hour with all the stuff that needs to be done. And that's no way to be still. But as it goes on, it says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So as we take time to reflect on God's sovereignty, we have to be still to do that. We have to put, away, put aside all the achievement, all the things we're trying to achieve to be patient, to be still and listen. It's difficult to be still. But when we're having tr- the most trouble with that, that should be a warning sign to us that we need to take a deep breath, be still, and know that the Lord is God. And another thing that uh, achievement does to us um, through the distraction is how many times, well, that's not a fair question because it's a lot for me, but how often in your life have you been so distracted by things, by doing or thinking about doing that you missed a divine moment? Your children trying to share something with you, but you were too busy to hear it. Uh, A friend tries to call to go out and reconnect, and you missed it. 
See, Jesus didn't miss those opportunities. But we do because we're so distracted by our achievements. And one thing that's dangerous about this is that it's all cloaked in virtue and um, traditional values. I mean, we've these aren't bad things. So these are things that need to be done. Somebody's got to do them, so why shouldn't it be me? Mary has chosen what is better. And that choice is one that we have to make every day to choose to make our relationship with God more important than our to-do list. I want to ask a few questions and see if we can get some conversation going maybe a little bit. Um, How has your life been defined by achievement? Think back, I mean, like I told you with my childhood, I mean, think back things that you've done in your life that um, was, achieve, was achievement important to you? Was there pride involved in your decisions? crickets in here I'm not asking you about your sex life people we've already done that (laughs) maybe this will be easier how do you define yourself with others you say hi I'm, I'm Alan I'm a computer programmer or I work for a medical device company try to make it sound as important as possible right Anybody ever introduce themselves with their job description right behind their name? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now it's, I'm Fran and I'm retired. <laughs> no, I'm <not> <laughs> You're just tired. <laughs> I think that's because of the childhood I was raised in being very poor that I push myself harder always to never wanting to be in that situation again. I think that's what you learn from your parents, either to be like them, you know, your, your dad, your grandfather, or to not be like them. Yeah. And not, not to say that there was anything wrong with my parents, but I just didn't want to be in their situation. So, I mean, I just kept going to college. Kept going to college. Right. Kept working. And, you know, so I felt like I was getting ahead, but at what cost? Right. It's like time with friends and family. um, I mean, always made it a priority to try to not have a Monday, Wednesday class. achievements of this life very often disappoint. So even if you've worked hard and even if you've maybe been successful at whatever endeavor, but often you feel hollow and you just you don't feel like 
it was worth necessarily the amount of effort you put into it at times. I'm not saying that's all altogether true, but um, I think we need a balance, you know. That uneasiness you talked about where your mind's going a million miles. We need to temper that with the knowledge that I can only do so much as a man in a day and the rest is on God. You know? I need to trust in him more and trust in me less. Otherwise, I might find myself trying to get those achievements that really fall short of really uh, making me feel full anyway. Right. Okay. Danny. Kind of no matter what the achievement was, it wasn't really never good enough. And then there was always, like you talked about earlier, setting another goal. Okay, I did that. Now what can I do better? Or what can I do next time? Right. Or how would I do it different? Right. So it's always trying to improve on the last achievement. Okay. So we reevaluate our goals and what worked, what didn't, how can I improve it? Yep. That's kind of the way business works, isn't it? <laughs> Who was the most successful businessman in the Bible? Job, maybe. I don't know. Who do you think? I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> well, if you look at pure wealth, probably Solomon, but yeah. it didn't end well for him until he came to that final conclusion of fear God and keep his commands for that is the whole duty of man. I mean, maybe at the very end of his life he finally got it, but he had ships of gold coming in regularly. You know, he had well, a lot of wealth. You see the same thing with Solomon and Colson. Yeah. Lots of power. Most profitable person was Noah, though, because he floated all his stock. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a dad joke. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I would think. David comes to mind as someone who is a businessman, and I'm right now reading um, the Divided Kingdom. Really, it's just where I'm at in the Bible reading. And one thing that I was thinking about that struck me was that I always found it hard to understand why David was a man after God's own heart, and he fully followed because you start talking about the divided kingdom of the other kings who did not fully follow him. And I thought, he murdered a man, and adultery, he did all these things, and wrong, and yet he didn't have any other gods before him. And we realized that the other kings had these, you know, they had these little Solomon on, they, they had worshipped other gods, there were a few that didn't, but... Um, I just thought it was interesting to me that kind of hit me that it wasn't about doing things right. It wasn't about not putting any other gods in your life. Right. And that's, that's a good way to sum this up is that it's, it's not about what we do, it's about who we belong to. It just kind of hit me. It's like, wow, I never was with this class and then reading it. That it, it just kind of hit me. Well, that's why he was a person after God's heart. He didn't have a mental illness. Right. He didn't get things right. He goofed up. <laughs> and I think we put 
do things right. Anyway, that's probably my thing is I want to do it right. I want to be obedient, do it right, almost as a God. But um, we think that's what's going to please him, and it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, we certainly don't want to do anything wrong intentionally, but there's a lot of right ways that we probably don't know about. Knowing me, if you end up saying, oh, I'm going to end up doing this right, but I've had every person say, and I'm living with a host right now, so every person say, he even Bob and said that every person is not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But if you're thinking that, oh, I'm end up doing this right, but you end up falling every step of the way. You end up falling, but you can pick yourself back up. And I think that's uh, what you're saying is that's a symptom of pride. And that's kind of what this whole lesson has been about, is, is, is pride and what happens when we, um, when we come to the end of that, when we look at our achievements and see how proud we are of those achievements, and what does the Bible tell us is the result of pride, is a fall. What do you do, what do, you do with a child who has no pride? I've never seen a child that had no pride. <laughs> it would be illustrated more as a poor self-image. <laughs> Some of us struggle with it. I think my father was probably the most humble man I'd ever known. I never once heard him brag about anything. He went about his business, worked his job in a factory. He could have been promoted in supervisory positions, but he refused them. And even when approached to be an elder, he was very hesitant. It's, it's like he didn't feel worthy. But he was probably the godliest man I ever knew.
Very likely. The last question I want to ask here is, and I think this is this is the I think this is probably the most important question that we'll ask in this class. And it's why do you do what you do? And I think that's where we get that's that's the crux of this class, of whether it's uh, whether we're in the temple of pleasure and we're talking about food or sex or whatever entertainment or if we're in the temple of power and we're talking about success or money or achievement, why do you do what you do? And that's a question that only you can answer. I mean, I can't answer it for you, but I think that through the answer of that question, we can determine is, is my achievement for my benefit and my glory or is my achievement for the glory of God? Is my money so that I can have security apart from God or so that I can use it to help others to glorify God? Is my success to make Alan look good or is my success something that I use for the glory of God? So why do you do what you do? And that's the question that we all have to answer for ourselves. But I would add, Alan, that this class gives us tools to self-evaluate so that we're less likely to have the problems of these gods taking over our lives. I mean, that's the value of being here, and that's the value of study, so that we can see, and, and the value of living more years, is that you can see from your own past, and you can learn from books and good teachers like yourself, um, and be more self-introspective and look at yourself daily so that you're trying to do the best you can daily. Very good. All right, that's the end of class. Next week, we're going to jump into the Temple of Love and talk about the God of Romance, which I may have to have somebody else teach that. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, there will be a video also next week so uh, come and be ready to discuss thank you all for being here hey i'm eddie white the senior minister for the east side church of christ sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast i hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.